0: Good morning, um, Mason. Thanks for worship this morning, um, leading us. And um, I, I, uh, I don't know about y'all, um, but I, 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 I want to say thanks, Mason. Um, gosh, how long have you been with us now? Almost six months? Is it maybe a little longer than that? Since May? May, since May? It's been almost a year. Somebody double-check that. Mallory, we've endured him that long already? (laughs) And we hired you in August. I think you may have picked up some things. So, yeah, so, um, Mason, I just appreciate your heart. And y'all need to know this. Mason and I, um, because of his student schedule and stuff, we, we, we try to have a regular meeting about every other week. It's been interrupted for a couple weeks now, and we we were texting, and, like, we both missed the the friendship and just getting together. Um, Pray for him as as I'm trying to mentor him and uh, just encourage him about some of his own growth. Um, And then pray for uh, me, I guess, because I get to enjoy him. It's a real, honestly, endure. I don't have to endure you. most days <laughs> so but we we do have a, a a relationship that the Lord is doing some special things in, and i 'm excited about that. I, I love pouring in to, to young folks like uh, Mason and uh, riley 's now a different part of that, so congratulations again to you guys but but Mason, I, I appreciate part of what I get to do is we send out um, Michael and I will put together in a Google Docs or Google Drive, whatever it is, um, kind of the proposals. For the sermon series, and then as we hone those, we share those with Mason, <clears throat> and then Mason looks at the topics and those th- kind of things, and he's choosing the songs through the, the work of the Spirit, so I'm not trying to dictate to him, and Mason, I just really feel like you, you did a great job this week um, pulling these songs together. For, uh, for what the, the message is. And that's just the work of the Spirit. This, you being sensitive to Him. And that's one of the things I really do appreciate about you, and, and we're, we're growing in that, uh, our own relationship. And so as we were worshiping this morning, um, one of the things, and, and by the way, you can turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. We're in their series on Malachi. Uh, we're going to take a break in Malachi for Easter. Um, we're going to do three weeks around Easter. The first week in Easter will be Jesus is a friend. Um, And so this is a week that I would really encourage you to to begin, and I dropped the hint this last week in an email, but begin to pray about who the Lord would have you invite um, that is not a believer or doesn't have a church and needs to know that Jesus is a friend. Um, Because that's what we're going to focus on, uh, that that idea of friendship a couple weeks uh, Easter and then a couple weeks after, and then we'll jump back into Malachi. Um, I want to read though, from 1 John. Everybody who's been here on Wednesday night night knows we've been working through 1 John. Um, And and I want to just read from chapter 4 for just a minute, because I think this sets us up well from a New Testament perspective about what we're going to look for or look at in the Old Testament here. So as we were worshiping, this just flooded my mind, it says in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. I think that's a huge key statement. We cannot love apart from the work of God. God is a God of love. And, and so when we think about the impact of what his character and nature produces in, as love, uh, we begin to see that. And that's what affords us the opportunity to love as it is. Now, I think when we come to Christ, and we're going to see this in the passage. When we come to Christ, our love transforms, and we love more like God does, and it's a, a better love. But let's keep going. It says, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We're going to stop there. As we look at this topic out of Malachi chapter 1, we're going to see that the root of what Malachi is addressing to the the nation of Israel at this point is actually rooted in in God's love for the people. And a lot of times when we come to the topic that we're going to be covering today, which is the topic of election, we, we, we want to look at this topic and say, how is this fair? How, how are these things, especially in the, the current culture we are in, uh, there, there's this emphasis on equity. And folks, let me say this. God is still a God of love even when things don't appear to be equitable. That, that is a, a, a misnomer like, about the requirement for God to do everything right and fair. God is always a God of love. Everything He does is motivated by love. Now, let me remind you this. Sometimes we, in our limitations, in our fallibility, we don't fully understand the meaning of what love really is. That's part of what we're trying to understand as we live our lives and we go to the Scriptures to, to uh, identify how God actually operates. So I want to I just say this really like um, I guess just transparently, I have been praying hard about this message because this is a message that it is, is so um, important that we need to make sure that we're right when we come to this text. And, and here's part of the, the struggle for me is this is like a topic that we could spend five to six hours easily unpacking. And the problem for us in this context is we don't have that kind of time. There's limitations on, on the the scope of the, the time itself. There's also limitations on how much we can cover in just a few minutes that we have together. So, so I was thinking about this. How, how do we illustrate this? Like, our understand this. How many of you like mystery novels or sort of suspenseful dramas? I, I, I do. Um, has anybody ever read Stephen James? Nobody? Oh man. Does anybody like FBI like suspense? Okay, you need to go get Stephen James. He's got a series, it's called Oh goodness, it's it's like five or six volumes that go. He he bases it off the chessboard. So you have the a pawn, then it goes like the rook the the, the through all the way to the king. And so it's phenomenal. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm using that illustration, you need to go read it, but you'll get this even if you don't understand the, the books. When you begin, he has this one um, antagonist who traces the FBI, like there, there's this con- uh, constant conflict between the, the main character and the antagonist that, that tr- uh, go out throughout the books. You've got to keep reading the books to find out how it's resolved. If you just pick up the one and stop, what happens? You're left with like kind of a darkness, like you you don't understand how things actually end. That's kind of the way this message is and the series is from here forward as we're dealing especially with the topic of election. If you come in and you hear this today and then you don't come back subsequent subsequent weeks, it's going to leave you in kind of some tension that will be unresolved and probably leave you in some ways even frustrated. Uh, maybe theologically, maybe emotionally, uh, m- maybe even relationally with me. Um, and so I, I'm kind of, in one sense, begging you to stay with us through this series. And if you can't be here like physically for some reason, please know that we uh, record these and we put them out so you can go and get the rest of the context. It's, it's like, what was it Paul Harvey would say? And now for the rest of the story, so, so tune in next week for the rest of the story, okay? And then the next week for the rest of the story because we're going to try to do this. So is that enough and uh, apologetic and y'all to know Matt's doing his best to like make this palatable but also to, to keep y'all hooked in and, and, and stuff. Okay, good. Nobody like yelled or screamed or said anything negative. So um, now... Let me give you this, we're going to read Malachi chapter 1 verses, we'll we'll go ahead and read 1 through 5 again, just to to set up the whole text. Um, Because I think if you were here a couple weeks ago when I talked about uh, verse one: the burden of the word of the Lord. It's interesting to me. I, I know that the, the text is like if you're reading the ESV, um, especially it says the oracle of the word of the Lord. That's a bad redundancy. The real idea is it's a burden of the word of the Lord. So Malachi is starting with this emphasis: there's a burden about this. It impacts him. It impacts the listeners. It, it, it's it's one that uh, a sense that this is so important. He wants to communicate this weighty matter that will transform the lives of his readers or his his, his hearers. So, the oracle or the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Immediately, let's, let's listen to the context about this love. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this text is such a linchpin text in the scriptures. And it's not just these few verses that I've read this morning. It continues throughout the prophecy of Malachi. Because Lord, what we know is this is a book that has been quoted in the New Testament uh, not just by Paul, many of us are familiar with Romans 9 that refers to this very passage. But Lord, there's another place, and uh, we're going to look at it this morning, where Jesus refers even back to the, the book of Malachi. And, and it's a key book. And, and Lord, so we, we have this res- great responsibility to uh, unpack it well, to understand it, to work to understand it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help our minds and our hearts and our spirits to wrestle through these things today well, and that your spirit would guard and guide us. So Father we commit this next few minutes to you and look forward to what you're gonna teach us as we review how this at this point in the the history of the Old Testament and the timeline this passage is so pertinent and what you have told uh, Malachi to record and we look forward to this now in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Well I want to give you a couple of key principles and we're gonna basically break down three things this morning the first two are kind of historical perspectives. Um, The first one is how the uh, prophecy here pertains both to the individuals of Jacob and Esau, and then second, how it also pertains to the people groups or the nations of Israel and Edom. And then the third thing that we're going to look at is some of the theological implications that begin to be shared as we uh, look at this passage. So, Uh, let's look first at the idea of these individuals. So we're going to do a huge Bible drill session. So get ready. Um, Angie, I was making fun of you um, and and Brad and your tabs. So this is a great morning to have your tabs handy so you can flip really quickly. But we're going to be in a couple books. Um, Genesis, we're going to be in Psalms, we're going to also be in Jeremiah. So the first one we're going to turn to is Genesis. So turn to Genesis chapter 25. Because here's what's happening in the text. The the people of Israel in the time of Malachi, they're rebellious. And we read that a couple of weeks ago as we were looking at the whole overview and introduction. Remember the the worship was being, um, they, well, they were not worshiping properly. They were disregarding the instructions of the Lord on how to do worship. And it wasn't just the priests. It was also the people. It was a combination. Uh, they were walking in rebellion. They were marrying uh, Uh, The the men were marrying women from uh, other nations that the Lord had commanded them not to do. They were also committing divorce and treating marriage flippantly. So the Lord was, the the context of, of the days of Malachi, people were just running rampant and going against the Lord. And so as the Lord begins this prophecy, one of the things that he wants to do is root everything that he's saying in the hope of the relationship that he secures By his love. And so he's pointing to Israel to say, Return to me, because I have loved you. And so what we need to understand is how is he rooting this love historically through the work of his people and and, and his more particularly his covenants that he's maintained throughout history? So we're going back to to Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to see the account of Jacob and Esau, because this is going to be important for us. So verse 21, um, and w- that's where we're going to pick up. And if you, well, actually we'll pick up in verse 19, just to give us a little bit more uh, context. And, and this will help you just be, rem- uh, be reminded of the fact that Abraham had Isaac, and, and then he's, uh, Isaac is the one who fathers Jacob and Esau. So verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. And by the way, just a small note, Remember when you see in Genesis, this, these are the generations, it's kind of this flagship marker. Um, the Hebrew is the word Toledot, um, and it, it has to do with the, the, the points where the Lord is doing a work, like a, it's kind of a, um, like what I would say is a, a, a place to mark down, to say here's a new like transition, as well as the way the Lord is working historically. So this is one of those points, Toledot these are the generations. It's this marker to say, hey, be alert. There's new information coming about what we need to tune in and see how the Lord is working through this. So these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the heirman, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the heirman, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So, th- so the twins are, are she's um, laden with twins, okay? Um, and obviously, at some point, these twins begin to struggle in an extremely unusual way. Gina, I'm sitting here watching you grin. I can Im- only imagine seeing Preston and Royal now as y'all are 10, right, 11, you're 11, you're crazy boys, climbing trees, active, were they that active in the womb? Were, they were, okay, so you may have a Rebecca kind of experience, okay, so I'm just, sorry, that just kind of popped into my brain. So, here's the idea, that these children obviously struggled intensely for her to have identified this, and it concerned her. She, she may have been feeling like she was concerned about the pregnancy itself, but it was so intense that she does something unique. She went to inquire of the Lord. And so here's what happens, and this is so amazing. So the Lord said to her, verse 23, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, that literally is the Lord turning the culture and the the way that the the culture had uh, set up their relationship structure upside down. Because according to the, the laws of the land and how everyone operated, who would be the one who would receive the blessing, who would be the leader in the family out of those two boys? It should have been the first. But before they're even born, the Lord tells Rebecca, I'm going to do something unique. I'm going to reverse this order, and it's going to make a difference in the lives, not only of these two boys, but of nations to come out of them. So we have the individual struggle, and then we have the promise of nations being in struggle and conflict as well. So let's, uh, and and the key is at uh, the end of verse 23, the older shall serve the younger. So let's continue to read. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body was like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand, holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter. A man of the field while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. So let's stop right there. Actually, let's read the next verse. Isaac loved Jacob. I'm sorry, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So here's so we have these two boys that are born, and we've got this prophecy from the Lord directly that things are going to be reversed about their upbringing. But what at this point, we don't know how that's going to happen. We just know that that is the the promise of circumstances that will eventually come. So here's what happens. The boys end up growing. They get older. And then at a point, there's this um, situation where Esau, the hunter, comes in from the hunt. And I'm just going to summarize some of this because we don't have time to read it all. Most of you will probably remember this account anyhow. Esau comes in from the hunt. He he wasn't successful. And he's really hungry. There's no telling how many days he'd been out trying to to secure food. But Jacob had fixed some red lentil soup of some kind. And we don't understand how, what it, uh, like it was totally made of, but it was kind of red. And so Esau is famished. And he's like, if I don't eat now, I'm going to die. And so Jacob, who is literally, his name means the supplanter or the heel grabber, the one who tries to trick is the idea. He takes this opportunity to look at Esau and say, I'll give you some soup if you trade it for your birthright. So you will not be able to have that birthright. It's going to be mine for that soup. And that's what happens. So um, essentially, that's one of those places that we begin to see the prophecy of the Lord being fulfilled. Esau has given up the right to lead Jacob for that bowl of soup. Jacob is now going to lead Esau because of his trickery in that sense. Even though it was totally up forthright. It's just a, he sees the opportunity, took advantage of the moment, and he then gets the birthright. So let's turn over to Genesis 27. So here we come into a different context just a little bit later in their lives. Isaac is a, a, about to pass away. He's gotten old. His eyesight is so bad that he can't see and determine which one of the, the boys is actually present before him until he Touches them and makes, makes sure that, you know, he's like, okay, that's Esau. Because remember, how was Esau born? He was a hairy redhead, okay? So um, Jacob was probably not quite that way. And so he, Isaac wants to know the, the, the difference. And here's the importance. What he's getting ready to do upon his approaching death, he wants to bestow a blessing, which is a huge em- emphasis within the, the Jewish uh, religious system and family system by the him uh, Isaac bestowing that blessing. He's telling the boys how their future will go, and so that blessing the boys are anticipating the the honoring of that blessing. So let's pick up in Genesis twenty seven verses eighteen through twenty nine, and let me give you just a little bit more background. Uh, remember that uh, Esau. He's told, uh, I'm sorry, Isaac has told Esau what's about to happen. Rebecca's listening. And remember, we just saw that Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. Well, Rebecca is trying to figure out how she can get an honor um, for Jacob. So she comes up with this plan as she knows that Esau's been out to hunt and he's about to go and receive the blessing. So she interrupts the plan by saying, I've got this suit. Let's put Esau's clothes on you, Jacob. Let's make you feel and smell like your brother so you get to receive the blessing. You're going to interrupt this process. And so that's where we're picking up. In Genesis 27, verses 18 through 29, I think is where we're going to read. So here. So he went into his father, this is Jacob, and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, he, he, he recognizes, something's not quite right. He says, um, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's. Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? Jacob, he answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, Now, this is where we really need to to focus in is what this blessing consists of. As Isaac is blessing, he thinks Esau the first, who actually is Jacob, okay? See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. He, you hear him waxing really eloquent. He's like, this is my favorite son, and he has just a, 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 been abundantly blessed by the fields and, and his life. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Now, now don't let that escape you. Isaac is, is blessing and saying the land and all that is in it is going to per- make you prosper. You're going to be wealthy. You're going to have success where you go. Okay? Verse 29. Here's where it gets really specific, thinking about the earlier prophecy to Rebecca about the older, I'm sorry, the younger serving. I'm sorry, the older serving the younger. Okay? Here's where it goes. The older serving the younger. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Do you hear the amazing twist and the promise of the blessings that Jacob has now secured through the trickery that he has uh, worked through his father? But the blessing is what? He is going to reap the benefits of the, the, the land, he's going to... Uh, Lord over nations, and not only that, all the other nations that are not from him will be what? Cursed. And if they curse the nations that come from Jacob, they will be cursed. So, all of that is this historical picture. Now, I want to remind you, because this is where, like, there's ideas about the, the issues around election. Some people hold that it's a election really pertains more to the nations than it does to individuals. And I'll be honest, I've wrestled through that. But here's the truth. The election of the nations can't happen apart from the election of the individuals. And we see that in Malachi especially. As I've been praying over that, it's like, why does the Lord use both the individuals and the nations? It's because it's, it's both. It's a both and. Because the nations are certainly represented in these individuals, and these individuals certainly receive the blessings themselves. So what happens as a result, individually between Esau and Jacob at this point? Well, they go their separate ways, because remember Rebecca uh, Esau comes back in and he says, "Father, I'm here." And Isaac realizes what happens, and then he bestows a separate blessing on Esau that is actually a, a negative one in some ways. And then Jacob and Rebekah fear that he's going to be killed by Esau, so he flees, and then the, the boys basically separate. Well, here's what's interesting to me. Um, what happens with Esau is so unique. Now, I, I'm gonna, we're going to do a little Bible drill thing here that's a little unusual, everybody take your Bibles, and if you have an electronic Bible, I don't know what to tell you because you're going to be looking for maps, okay? So if you have a really good electronic Bible, you might have a map program on it. But I'm going to the back of my Bible, literally my colored maps right here, okay? And what I'm looking at, I'm I'm going to look at two of these maps. This is actually the third map. The first one in my Bible is the biblical world of the patriarchs. The second one is the route of the Exodus, and the third is the 12 tribes of Israel. So the second and third are helpful, the the route of the Exodus and then the 12 tribes of Israel, and here's why. Um, Some of y'all, y'all don't have the right Bible that I'm preaching from, so if you have the wrong Bible, we just need to compare maps, okay? I'm teasing, obviously. So what's that? You'll take donations, yeah, to get the right Bible, okay. So I'm going to look at the route of the Exodus because I think it's a little bit more helpful than the, the, the one of the 12 tribes, even though it'll help you. Um, so if you're looking at the map of the route of the Exodus, you see kind of on the left side, which would be the west, you have the, like the lower Egypt. And you're going to have um, like the, the um, Sinai Peninsula. It's surrounded by the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. Is everybody with me? Okay. And what's really interesting, this is, and this is historical, so don't think I'm like just showing you ge- geography stuff, because this is really important, even as we look at the map of the Exodus, and we're going to get there in a few minutes, okay? If you see, like, has everybody found the route of the Israeli- Israelites from Egypt to Mount Sinai? Mine is a red line that starts kind of up at uh, Katana and Ramses, and it comes down kind of through the, the, s- the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. Is everybody with me? Is that, okay, we're good. So when they hit Sinai, on my map, the arrow changes from a solid line to like a dashed line. Is that what y'all's is doing too? Okay, I I see some affirmative nods. So I'm not, you're not lost, I'm with you. Okay, so if you notice that line, so they've wandered in the wilderness. Now they're getting ready to go up out of the Exodus. Moses is leading them into the promised land. Okay, not out of those Sinai wilderness. They're not going to stay in forever in the Sinai wilderness. They're going up to Israel. And what happens is, is that changes. It's in the Exodus. When well, you go up to the top of the Gulf of Aqaba, my map has a little town called Taba or Ezion geber Is everybody seeing that? Right at the north part of the Gulf of Aqaba. And then what happens, if you notice, above that in kind of the gray text, there is the land of Edom. You follow me? Does everybody see Edom right there? So it's kind of directly between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba. That land of Edom, that is the land that Esau settled in when he left Isaac and Rebekah. That land is really unique. On that map, if you look straight between the, the land, uh, or between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba, you're going to see, at least on mine, Petra. How many of you are familiar with Petra? Okay, some of you are. You probably know, uh, you're familiar with it even though you may not be. Petra is like, when, when you, you remember, how many of you watched Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, okay. You remember when they went into that place in the, in the mountain? They went through the valley, and, and then it's like there's this huge piece of uh, historic place that they go in, and the, um, the old, it, it was when they're looking for the grail. And this this cut into the stone, there's this uh, beautiful place um, with columns and all those things. It's taking the idea of Petra right there. It's interesting. If you go look at really good pictures of Petra, the ground there is red, That's actually part of the land that Esau occupied in Edom. There's another place that he occupied called Seir, S-E-I-R. That was a mountain, a high ground that actually would retain the water because that's an arid area. But Seir was this high enough place that the rain would, would come there when it wouldn't go to the arid ground, and they could farm and they could live. And there's some really incredible like, principles about how that land is farmable. Uh, like, it's open for agriculture and all those kind of things, okay? And then the capital of Edom is a city called Basra, which if, that's where you, if you look at the um, map of the 12 tribes, mine has Basra listed, it's, it's kind of east of Tamar just a little bit, so it's closer to the Dead Sea, and that's important as well. So, y'all having fun with maps now? So, here's the cool thing about all this, is what we see in the Exodus, now you see all that about Edom, the best route for the Israelites to go from Sinai Peninsula would have been straight up to the Dead Sea and then kind of around the Dead Sea. But what does the map show us about their route? They had to circumvent to the west of Edom. Why is that? Because the Israelites and the Edomites, the offspring of Esau, were always at odds. Because the prophecy that we read in Genesis 25, because of the blessings that were poured out upon them. And so we, we see this constant conflict, even throughout the Exodus, so hundreds of years later, this conflict is still occurring, and the Edom might say, "No, Israel, you will have no opportunity to walk through our land." And we're gonna we're gonna look at that a little bit more in a few minutes. So let's continue. So so let me let me go back to if you have your Bibles, go back to um, go back to Malachi for just right now, um, and. and let me explain why all of this research, and we're going to get to a little bit more even. Here's the question to me that, that like interrupted my thoughts. Because at no point in the text that we've read in Genesis have we seen anything or, or read anything about the Lord saying he loves Jacob and he hates Esau. So I'm like, where does that come from? Because in Romans 9... That's, Malachi is the exact passage that Paul quotes from in Romans 9, and he says that Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated, as he's referring to these things. So I'm like, why did the Lord say that to Malachi? Because it's not Malachi writing that, it's not like his own prophecy, it's the, he's recording, the Lord says this, it's the Lord's words exactly. So, So I was like, how do we see this distinction, because the love of the Lord and the hatred of the Lord, those are very polar things. And so I was like, how, do, how does all that reconcile? Where does it come from? How does it show up through the Old Testament historically? So here's what I started realizing. The prophecies, though they don't say it, what we see fleshed out through the history and the prophecies bears witness to that kind of strong language about his love for Jacob and the nation of Israel, and his hatred for Esau and the Edomites that come out of his lineage. Now, let's go a little further. So look at, um, well, let me, let me just catch you up on a little bit of history. Um, so David, well, actually, let me just give you a couple pieces here. Number one, if you go back and look in First Samuel, Saul, Saul, King Saul, he fought the Edomites consistently. King David fought the Edomites. Here's an interesting thing. In 1 Samuel um, no, I'm sorry, it's in 2 Samuel 18. Both of these are in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 8, verse 13, um, David killed some 18,000 men that were Edomites. That's a ton. Now, here's what's interesting one of the men actually escaped. His name was, um, I want to make sure I get this, Hadad. He escaped. Now Joab was the commander of David's army and somehow he, he escaped. Hadad escaped Joab. Later, Hadad goes to Egypt. He's blessed by Pharaoh and his, his progeny and offspring, they continue to grow. So this Edomite, Though they've been minimized, they grow again. When Solomon comes on the scene, Hadad has gotten enough strength that he is the bane of Solomon's existence. And then they come back and they continue to develop in the land of Edom. All throughout Israel's history, Edom has been a thorn in Israel's side. So, what does that mean? We see the prophecy continuing to flesh out, that these two are going to be in in conflict continually. But what's the end result? Well, this is where I think it gets really a little bit more interesting. So I want to kind of nutshell this real quickly. We have the individual conflict between Jacob and Esau. We have the national conflict between Israel and Edom that continues for centuries. What does all this mean, though, theologically. This is, this is where the history is a great piece, but there's a message beyond, beyond behind the history that has a theological implication, and this is what it is. We need to remember this. It goes back to Malachi 1. Look at, look at this verse 2 again. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Who is the you in that passage? It's the nation of Israel. It's the the wayward people who the Lord is saying, Malachi, speak to them so that they will return to me because I love them. I've never stopped loving them. The promises that I have made, I've constantly and consistently worked to fulfill because I love them. But they have been wayward and disobedient and rebellious. Yet through all of that, I love them. So, let's look at a couple things. And I, I think we need to m- make sure that... I, I wanna, I'm going to stick close to my notes here for a couple minutes. First of all, we need to understand that this love is a kind of love that is distinct. For it is a love that is not the same love for all of humanity. Does that make sense? It's a unique love and that he's called Jacob and the nation in a different manner than he did Esau and the Edomites. Though though certainly he loves all of humanity, there's a unique love there. And here's what makes it unique, and we need to remember this at the core of all of these things. Did Jacob merit God's love in any way? Was there anything that he did that deserved the love of God or that would have earned him favor before God? Absolutely not so, so the, the the unique thing is if we look at this very carefully in a theological context when was the love of god explained or expressed about the boys prior to the birth right they had, they hadn't even gotten out of the womb and the lord's already expressed something about them then we know what was jacob's character like really uh, Throughout uh, the early parts of his lives, before he has an encounter with the Lord, he has it at Bethel, and and then he has it at uh, Peniel. Am I getting that right? I, I didn't. I'm just trying to. Can't remember right now. But anyhow, when he wrestles the angel of God, and then when he sees the Jacob's ladder, there's all these incredible things that happen in his life after that point, where the Lord begins to say, or not begins. He says to him. Change your name, you're no longer Jacob, you'll be called Israel. And there are all these things about the blessing. But before that, what is Jacob's character like? He's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's a conniver. He, he, his name fits, right? He's the supplanter, the heel grabber, the one who wants to jockey for his own benefit and position. That's what he was. There was no humility to him. The, the, for the Lord to love him, it was based nothing upon his character or nature. It was simply God's favor. And what did Esau do to warrant anything for God to hate him or despise him to to shift the, the social structure? There was nothing. It was simply the Lord's sovereign, providential election of these two boys. And in a sense, what we have to really say is, Jacob, the Lord, changed and transformed. Esau, what did the Lord do? He just left him to his own devices, and certainly there's there's consequences to that later, but there's there's this history there that makes us recognize that the Lord does something. And here in Malachi, the point is for him to, for the Lord to say to the wayward people, "Return to me, because I love you." Folks, we may not always understand the love of God, and let me let me even say this: part of what I've been really wrestling through in the last probably year and a half, two years, and this, this may stretch your thinking a little bit, but you realize that everything that God does on, on our behalf in relationship to us, He is accommodating us. Now, now, what you may go, what does that mean, Matt? The language He uses, we, we it's accommodating. We're not intelligent enough. We're not alive in our spirits enough we, we don't have the, the ability to understand the things of God well enough unless he lowers himself for our understanding so when we think about the language of scripture we're always seeing through and, and this is a simple explanation avail dimly does that make sense so, so everything that we understand about the Lord it's, it's an accommodation to us So when we think about his love for us, can we fully understand his love? The answer is no. His love is vastly different than any amount of love that we can have for one another or even for him. We we can begin to understand those things, but can we fully comprehend it? The answer is no. And so so when we come to these passages, I'm going to confess to you, some of this is actually just mysterious. And we need to rest in some of the mystery of it. That's okay. It's okay. We need to remain humble and say, okay, this, there's truth to what the Scriptures teach us. And we can rest in that. And it's going to stretch us. But here's the, the, the basic uh, hope of the message is this. Because God is a God of love he, and He loves properly, He will never do anything wrong. And, and we sang it this morning. Because why? He's a holy God. There's never anything He does that is not holy. So when God loves and He also judges or pours out His wrath, is that ever absent of His love? The answer is no. He's who He is all the time. It's this idea of the doctrine of simplicity, and we've kind of talked about that in the recent months. But it's that God does not like you don't slice him into parts and then he operates in different ways according to that part. He's always operating according to his love. He's always operating justly. Even when he operates in his wrath, that is just and it's right and it's loving. And we have to sometimes lay aside our own definitions of these things like fairness and equity because our perspectives on those things are limited by our humanity. And we have to trust the character and quality of, of who the Lord is. That's why I think, and, and I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but why in Malachi 3.1, let's read that real quick. Malachi comes to this conclusion, uh, or says this, about the, because it's actually the, the Lord, um, actually it's Malachi 3.6. It's the Lord says this, Malachi three six, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So, so when we think about this key idea, the Lord never changes. It's, that's that doctrine of immutability. That I can't do it, Gina. I can't. So I'm going to do it. Gina talks about, y'all... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. What happened with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? It's a terrible illustration. I'm corrupting your minds now, Gina. You've, you've it's, it, she says, it's brilliant. What happened with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? They were just regular turtles until what? They they experienced that toxic slug sludge, and then they mutated. They changed into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that were somehow, like, able to speak and be ninjas. Immutability means you don't change. That's the, that, that's, yeah. see, th- this is why you don't do this, Gina. So, <laughs> no. God does not turn us into mutant ninja turtles. Okay, I love the, the ninja part. You know, that would take me back to my early middle school days um, where I tried to throw throwing stars at my brothers. Um, didn't, I didn't do that. Don't ever do that, Preston or Royal. I can't ever tell which one y'all are. Okay. Um, <laughs> They know, they know, I'm just, uh, Preston, is it royal? You want to be a a turtle? At least be a ninja turtle. So all of that to say, God does not change, okay? God never changes. So when we think about his unchanging nature, character, his love never changes. His, His justice never changes. Who he is is always the same. for for all of eternity for us. And, And that is like some ways hard to get my head around, but all of the doctrines of the Scripture have to be rooted in who He is. And that's why when we come to election, though it's such a hard doctrine to get our minds wrapped around, and it puts us in a place of tension, I want to encourage you, rest in who the Lord is. Because him never changing is the key of all of this. And He loves us with an everlasting love. Now, let's go a little further. Because his, what we need to recognize is that because the Lord never changes, His favor upon Jacob and Esau, the, the direction of that favor never changed. For Jacob, it was always the same. Despite his character, despite his nature, despite his struggles. For Esau, it never changed, despite his own issues. All of those things, because the Lord is who he is and his prophecies were given, they never change. So here's what happens turn over to Deuteronomy 7. We're going to see a little more of this history play out because I think this is important for us to understand. Because not only was it for the two individuals, not only was it for the, the land of Edom, this is going to come in and we're going we're to look at what Moses says here about the land of Edom and the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and that lineage, that Moses coming out of the, the land of uh, Egypt with the Israelites in the Exodus has this to say in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You hear the idea of election. The, the Lord has looked and said, Israelites, this is the promise. You're his favorite people. He chose you of all the people. He, he just said, I want this group. There's no reason why. There's no merit. Let's keep reading. Verse 8, but it is because. Oh, actually, let's. For you are the fewest of all people. So he's saying you are the, like the, the least who would be considered this. Verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. You hear that immutability right there. Okay, it's rooted in that. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their faces those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Now let's read verse 11. Verse um, it says, you shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. So Moses captures this moment with the Israelites. He says, this is the promise. This is the hope. But your responsibility in, this, in relationship with this covenant-keeping God is to be faithful to His commands. What does that say to us about Malachi? Here, though, Moses has said this. The Israelites have once again done what? Failed to keep commands. Fail to obey the Lord. And the Lord in Malachi is once again reminding them of his faithfulness to his covenant rooted in his love for them despite anything about them. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 49. So, again, I'm trying to, hopefully, you're, you're kind of following this because the, the key here is why does the, the Lord in this sense in Jeremiah, I love Jacob and Esau hated? How does that play out? Why? How is he justified in saying that at this point? Because he's not ever said it before. But what we're starting to see is the the fulfillment of the covenants and the blessings being played out to reflect the love and the hate. So Jeremiah forty-nine verses ten through eighteen. Jeremiah forty-nine verses ten through eighteen. Now this is this is interesting, and I want to point out here as we begin to read this. There's the individual. And there's also the nation. Notice how he uses uh, the prophet uses the word Esau, and he also uses the word Edom distinctly. Okay, verse ten. But I have stripped Esau bare; I have uncovered his hiding places, and he is not able to conceal himself. Wow. His children are destroyed, and his brothers and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave your fatherless children; I will keep them alive, and let your widows trust in me. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. So let me, let me pause there because I, I, I wrestled with that for just a minute. Those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it. Will you go unpunished? It's this idea of judgment for those who did not deserve it. That, that there's still a discipline that comes because the Lord is mighty. He says, You shall not go and punish, but you must drink. Verse 13, For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord. Now here's the interesting that Basra, what is Basra? The capital of Edom. So there's a shift from Esau to the capital of Edom, shall become a, listen to this, a horror, a taunt, a waste. And a curse and all her cities shall be perpetual waste. Whoa, that that like shocks me. The Lord is, remember the context. Jacob he loves, Esau he hates, Edom is receiving the promise, the prophecy of her destruction. And you hear the Lord's distaste for the people, the offspring of Esau. Listen to those descriptions again, verse 13. A horror, a taunt, a waste, and a curse. All of our cities shall be perpetual waste. Let's continue. For I I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations. Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. You hear the tension between uh, Israel and Edom. For behold, I will make you small among the nations, despised among mankind. That's the curse on Edom. The horror you inspire has deceived you and the pride of your heart. You who live in the clefts of the rock. What does that sound like? Petra. Right? It sounds like the people of Petra right there. You who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill. Seer. Though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Verse 17. Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its disasters. As when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord, no man shall dwell, dwell there, no man shall sojourn in her. What a harsh statement that the Lord makes about Edom. So remember, historically what we're seeing is this curse, this Uh, promise to Jacob of blessing and honor. But this curse upon Esau and Edom, now it didn't happen at first. But over time, Edom is ultimately destroyed and Esau's people are wiped from the face of the planet because the Lord has promised those things and He has told them that they shall be cursed among all men. Election. Of Jacob is a serious thing for him to rejoice in. Now go back to this. And I want to remind you this. Was Esau elected to anything? The answer would be no. He was left in his position of sin and rebellion. He was serving his flesh as an individual that led to a nation that served its flesh and its pride, that they thought we will live on high, that we will build these cliffs, that we will be such a a, a wonderful land that we will be able to subvert and subdue Israel and all the surrounding nations. The Lord removed his hand from them and left them to, to see the end of their sin. But with Jacob, he called him and chose the nation of Israel to something different not by any merit of their own, but simply because of His love and mercy for them. So, let's turn to Psalm 89. We're almost done. Look over in Psalm 89, because I think this is a great psalm for us to be reminded of as we consider the Lord's work in the life of Israel. Psalm 89, verses 31-34. through Here's what he says. And I I would just preface this by saying the Lord's promise of discipline to those He loves is found here. Psalm 89, verse 31 through 34. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from Him my steadfast love or be false my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Doesn't that describe the nation of Israel? How they constantly broke the commands and the statutes of God, but because of God's faithfulness to His covenant, because of His faithful love to them, He says He will continue to love them and correct them not because of their merit, not because of the, the promise of their success or their return, simply because of His love and who He is in His unchanging character. So, I want to read this because I think this is a great statement that I put down well. God's vengeance, His discipline, ever pursues the Israelites in when they're disobedient. But get this. He always showed his love in that. His love was ever fixed upon them. That's a good news, piece of good news for us as Christians. Because here's where this comes down for us today. And I hopefully this will Summarize really quickly. We see in this text, and I hope I've done a clear enough uh, job of showing you why the Lord had Malachi record these things and what the Lord's purpose is: is to elevate His love for people who don't merit any kind of worthiness for saving. That's me. That's you. Because for all of us, the wages or the payment for our sin is what? It's death. We, we have earned no reason or no, there should be no merit within us for the love to say, oh, they, they, they've done such a good job, now I will love them. It's simply by His grace and His mercy that He has loved us and called us to His purpose of, and to salvation. And here's what's so interesting. If we can begin to get our minds wrapped around that concept, we can begin to rest in the security of what God's done on our behalf. Because the truth is, I think that the doctrine of election provides us so much hope. It's the only thing that really provides us hope. Because I don't know about you, but I struggle with sin again and again and again. I was listening to Matt Papa this morning on my way in. Uh, Mason, He was quoting Romans 7 in the song about the, the struggle that every one of us has with sin. That the things that we desire not to do, we do. The things that we wish we didn't do, we do. Because sin, we still struggle in. That was Paul writing that after his conversion. We always will struggle with sin until we're glorified. But because of God's faithfulness and His love towards us, we have hope because salvation is of the Lord. Now, here's what's really interesting. I want to give you a couple things. We we need to, first of all, recognize the way, as we think about the, the doctrine of election, we need to recognize the way the Lord has historically worked. That's a key. That's why all the time in history. Second, we need to know this. God is always faithful to His covenant as we walk out of here today and as you go through this week and you may struggle, you may hit some kind of real rebellious point in your life and sin just overwhelms you and you have weakness and you you crumble in that. As a believer, remember, God is always faithful faithful to His covenant. He will discipline you and He will bring you back. That is good news. Now, lastly, and and I want to help you with this because this is this is the point where stay tuned to next week this doctrine is so hard to just wrestle through in an old testament perspective but here's what's interesting in malachi 3 1 there's this promise of a precursor to jesus john the baptist and his followers are actually at a point in matthew chapter 11 you can read this on your own they are concerned that jesus may not be the messiah And so, John's disciples come and ask him, and Jesus points to Malachi 3.1 and says that this is being fulfilled, and and essentially saying, I am the one that John's prophesied about. I, I am the fulfillment of these things. So, Malachi is one of these key passages that we see the Old Testament, all of this history, I should do it this way, all of this history from Genesis captured, propelling us to the New Testament of Jesus, and then that Paul later refers back to the same verses. We need to, like, hold on. How is all of this going to, like, begin to, to flesh out in the New Testament? So I want to encourage you, if this is stretching you, if this is more than just, like, a historical lesson, and all of a sudden there's a little bit of tension put in your life where you're like, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure about all this, believe me, I, I totally understand Honestly, for like 30 years, I've wrestled with these concepts theologically. And in 40 minutes or so, to unpack all of these things is unfair for me, or to be placed on me, or to be placed upon you. So what I want to encourage you to do is continue to, to wrestle through these things this week. Come back next week as we explore the connection to the New Testament and how the Lord fulfills this and continues this pattern of electing and promise and faithfulness to the covenant, covenant through Christ, and why and how Paul connects those, those dots as well. Because all of this is about the Lord's love for us as His children, His love for the, the Israelites, who, guess what, the Scriptures tell us we've been grafted into as believers, is the seed of Abraham. It's amazing all these concepts that start coming together around this. But it is tough stuff. It is tough stuff. So I want to encourage you, No, know, we see the historical piece. We see how it ties into the New Testament. We're going to connect more dots in weeks to come. But ultimately, do this. Find rest. Find rest and security and hope that God is faithful. Faithful always to His covenant. That is, that is enough for every one of us to walk away now, today going, I'm strengthened, I'm encouraged, and there's hope for me. Now let me say this. You may be here today and you go, I, this is over my head. I don't know Christ is my Savior. I, I don't understand all these things. Or that puts me in some heavy tension. Can I just encourage you again, come back or maybe do this. Set him an appointment with myself or Michael or some other people that you may be around We'll sit down and we'll talk to you about these things at length. That's what we're here for. This is not just about the pulpit ministry of the church. This is about us walking with you as individuals, not just in a corporate setting, but individually to help you understand these things and see how the Lord might be working in your life to call you to salvation and freedom so that you don't remain an enemy of God, but instead you understand The hope of the calling that He is placing upon your life. That may feel like conviction right now. It may be tension right now. That's okay. That's okay. I've been there. Most of the people in this room have been there. But we don't want you to stay there. We want you to find freedom and hope that's in Christ because that's what He promises. Okay? So so if you're in that place, know we'd love to counsel with you. Take you to more scripture to explain these things and to provide you answers to the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ that he saves sinners. Okay? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, rich stuff this morning, lots of history, lots of scripture. Lord, I just pray that your spirit will continue to provide us wisdom and insight and understanding to the depths of these things because it is tough. Lord, we also know this. You've given us the specifics of your uh, thoughts in, in the Word of God that we might know these things to the best of our abilities. You, you help us to understand. Your Spirit provides inside and understanding. And we just trust you that you're going to make these things clear as we go along. So, Father, I, I pray that this week, we continue to wrestle through some of these things, that we, if we're not confident about these doctrines, that we would wrestle, and your Spirit will continue to speak, and you would direct us to more Scripture that speaks to the, uh, and brings clarity to these thoughts, and speaks to these same issues. So, Father, ultimately, what we know is this. You are a God who does not change, by definition. By the revelation of Scripture, you prove that. And Lord, the the Scriptures also tell us that you are faithful to your covenant, and you discipline those that you love. And so, Lord, maybe we're experiencing that. Lord, just as Malachi prophesied to the Israelites for them to return, Lord, we may need to return. We, we may need to humble ourselves, to repent of sin, to change our worship, not to be self-oriented like they were, but instead to align with you. Lord, we will do that. Because your spirit will lead us to that. We'll find peace and, and hope. We'll find the security of your promises to be sure and the joy of what it means to walk in your ways. That will be the driving force for us. So, Lord, I pray that we not be satisfied this week with a shallow walk with you, but instead we'd be intentional in all ways, whether that be prayer, whether that be devotion, whether that be how we contemplate the scriptures. All of these things, Lord, we would dive deep this week until we get ready to, to gather again next week to continue the, the thoughts on this message. So, Father, I thank you for our, the folks that were here. I thank you for the guests that were with us. I pray that you bless us this week as we go out and serve you and our community, connecting with uh, people so that their lives can be changed and we share the hope and the love and the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Because that alone is what transforms you alone, Jesus, are the Savior. We rest in you and put our hope in your goodness and love to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to thank you for being at the Grove Church to worship with us, to be under the teaching of the Word. Uh, have a blessed Sunday afternoon. We're not rushing you out of here. We've had some great fellowship the last couple of weeks after the service. Please feel free to do that. And if you haven't had a chance to uh, personally congratulate uh, Mason and Riley, Please take a minute to do that. Um, We're going to counsel Riley on her wisdom of saying yes to to Mason later. (laughs) Just teasing. Yeah, no, it's not a mistake. Not a mistake at all. So we're really excited for you guys. So have a, a great Sunday afternoon.